Section 6 of Days with Walt Whitman by Edward Carpenter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Poetic Form of Leaves of Grass. Of all the tribes of specially literary people, one sometimes thinks, of the Popes, Drydens, Swinburnes, Potters, the Brownings, or Tennysons even, not to mention hosts of lesser names, which of them, after all, as time goes on, and except for certain antiquarian interests, and a few passages which represent the real unloading of the writer's hearts, will really be affectionately remembered or persistently read, a few pithy passages of verse or tale, enshrining some vivid, sharp experience, and for the rest, what a deluge of words! The touch on actual life, so thin, so poor, so ignorant, the society, yes, which animates itself round a rape of a lock, or discusses broad church questions over the walnuts and the wine, is there, but of the great world, what? A shade of sentiment, or of thought, interesting enough, no doubt, and which may happen to be in vogue among a certain class. But of the great reaches of human passion and experience, how much, or how little, Words, words, and fine-spun forms out of the thinnest basis of material, at every turn of the page, gross misapprehensions and ignorance of the actual lives and conditions of life and heart of the thousands and millions and thousand millions of the earth. How can these things hold any readers except those whose outlook is equally blinkered? The purely literary work has its interest, has its place, but its appeal is so limited. With Whitman, the workman, the normal or average man, for of course the man who deals with materials and wins his living from them is the normal man, comes for the first time in a deliberate and representative way into literature. He comes not as a man who abandons his former mode of life in order to seek a literary ideal, but as the master workman who stays where he is and uses literary form for his own expression, and with the same directness and mastery that he uses towards life. Hence a new era of literature, a literature appealing to all who deal with life directly and know what it is, a literature which will be read and lovingly absorbed by the millions as time goes on. We may, perhaps, say that in every great artist there is something of the manner of the workman, in Michelangelo, in Beethoven, in Velasquez, in Fadus, in Dante, a certain clearing for action, economy, directness, decisiveness. The good workman wants to make his work absolutely effective. That is his first thought. The great artist will not stop short of the most clear and perfect expression. He will do nothing to cloud it. In a note of Whitman's for his own use, we find recommended as a rule for composition, quote, the most translucent clearness without variation, end quote, from Notes and Fragments left by Walt Whitman and edited by R. M. Buck, 1899, page 70. And everyone must feel that the first and root criterion of form is expression. If the work conveys the meaning perfectly, then obviously any change of form which necessarily must bring some change of meaning with it will be a loss. Therefore, the expression being perfect, the form is also perfect. The two cannot be separated. 
We may analyze or examine the form in such a case, but to propose to alter it is mere foolishness. Read again the poem, To Him That Was Crucified, quoted in the preceding paper, and realize the wonderful burden of thought and emotion conveyed, and then also realize that a single word displaced or altered anywhere in the poem would blur or diminish its total message and expression. Is it possible, indeed, in these cases of perfect excellence, to stop and examine the form as a thing apart? I do not say that it's impossible, but it is surely very difficult. Are there not some pieces of music so beautiful that though we try again and again while hearing them to analyze their form, we simply fail to do so? And are there not poems of which the mind refuses to count the syllables? Read, for example, the following from Leaves of Grass. Reconciliation Word over all, beautiful as the sky, beautiful that war and all its deeds of carnage must in time be utterly lost, that the hands of the sisters, death and night, incessantly, softly wash again and ever again this soiled world. For my enemy is dead. A man divine as myself is dead. I look where he lies, white-faced and still in the coffin. I draw near, bend down, and touch lightly with my lips the white face in the coffin. End of poem. Here, underneath all the time, one feels a subtle, impalpable meter pulsing. Someone possibly may be able to disentangle and define that meter, but I confess that I can't, simply because each time I read, the meaning holds and fills my mind too full. Let a thing be said with such animation and directness that you try in vain to think of the form, then surely that form is perfect, whatever it is. The form vanishes in the meaning, and that is what our bodies will one day do not disappear from sight, but so glow and be suffused in what they convey as to cease to have any separate existence. Footnote. Quote, I had not dreamed, says Mrs. Gilchrist in a woman's estimate of Walt Whitman, that words could cease to be words and become electric streams like these. I do assure you that strong as I am, I sometimes feel as if I had not bodily strength to read many of these poems. In the series headed Calamus, for instance, in some of the songs of parting, the voice out of the sea, the poem beginning tears, tears, etc. There's such a weight of emotion, such a tension of the heart, that mine refuses to beat under it, stands quite still, and I'm obliged to lay the book down for a while. End quote. End of footnote. There is no need today to justify Whitman's forms and rhythms any more than there is need to justify those of Beethoven or Brahms or Wagner. There are good country folk who delight to sit and beat time with hand or foot to the village band, and there are folk who only recognize a ballad meter in poetry. But they need not detain us. Ballad meters have an excellent and charming use and quality, but they do not cover the whole ground. There are two things in literature which demand expression, roughly, brain and heart. On the one hand, mere fact, description, argument. On the other, mood, emotion, 
mental coloring. As the extreme type of the one, we have books of law, science, mathematics. As the extreme type of the other, and lying beyond, literature, music. In literature proper, there's always, of course, a blend or admixture of the two elements, but those works which express a predominance of the mental and scientific element come under the head of prose, and those which express predominant emotion come under the head of poetry, and approach the musical in form. Just as in music, every mood has its rhythm, light jingles of dances, lulling, swaying cradle songs, ballad refrains, swelling love songs, strong marches, or great symphonic meters, including these. So, in poetry, quote, Wherever there is emotion concerned in the thought, there will be emotional effects in the language. That is, there will be rhythm, and the wave-like rhythms and rhymes and recurrences will take on the simplest and briefest or the most complex and far-reaching forms according to the character of the emotion concerned. Footnote from Angel's Wings by E. Carpenter, 1898, page 73. End of footnote. The underlying and dominant mood of Whitman's poems corresponding to his theme is extraordinarily vast and inclusive, and it requires for its expression a rhythm of similarly broad and flexible character. It is obvious that such emotions as he deals with could never be caged in a symmetrical verse or stanza. Quote, I have not so much emulated the birds that musically sing, I have abandoned myself to flights, broad circles. The hawk, the seagull, have far more possessed me than the canary or mockingbird. I have not felt to warble and trill, however sweetly. I have felt to soar in freedom and in the fullness of power, joy, volition. End quote. But in thus soaring in freedom and the fullness of power and joy, he finds a rhythm and a music of his own. Quote, I see, says Anne Gilchrist, that no counting of syllables will reveal the mechanism of the music, and that this rushing spontaneity could not stay to bind itself with the fetters of square bracket, formal, and square bracket, meter. But I know that the music is there, and that I would not, for something, change ears with those who cannot hear it. End quote. Footnote, from a woman's estimate, now republished among the papers in In Re Walt Whitman, McKay, Philadelphia, 1893. End of footnote. Whitman needed for his expression a poetical form of the utmost flexibility, capable of adaptation to the widest ranges of his immense personality. It is, in fact, his personality which forms the organic center of Leaves of Grass, he calls the latter, bracket, see a backward glance or traveled roads, end bracket, quote, an attempt from first to last to put a person, a human being, bracket, myself in the latter half of the 19th century in America, close bracket, freely, fully, and truly on record, end quote. As a work of art, therefore, Leaves of Grass ought to stand whole, unbroken, undivided, and grouped round the central presence of the author. Quote, Who touches this touches a man. End quote. Quote, 
In regard to the unity and construction of the poems, says John Burroughs in The Flight of the Eagle, the reader sooner or later discovers the true solution to be that the dependence, cohesion, and final reconciliation of the whole are in the personality of the poet himself. When Tennyson sends out a poem, it is perfect like an apple or a peach. Slowly wrought out and dismissed, it drops from its boughs, holding a conception or an idea that spheres it and makes it whole. It is completed, distinct, and separate might be his, or might be any man's. It carries his quality, but it is a thing of itself, and centers and depends upon itself, whether or not the world will hereafter consent, as in the past, to call only beautiful creations of this sort poems, remains to be seen, but this is certainly not what Walt Whitman does or aims to do, except in a few cases. He completes no poems apart and separate from himself, and his pages abound in hints to that effect. Subquote. Let others finish specimens. I never finish specimens. I shower them by exhaustless laws, as nature does, fresh and modern continually. End of subquote. His lines are pulsations, thrills, waves of force, indefinite dynamics, formless, constantly emanating from the living center and they carry the quality of the author's personal presence with them in a way that is unprecedented in literature. End quote. From Birds and Poets, New York, 1877, page 234. And again Whitman says, I'm quoting from the edition of 1860, I will not make poems with reference to parts, but I will make leaves, poems, poemettes, songs, says, thoughts, with reference to ensemble, and I will not sing with reference to a day, but with reference to all days, and I will not make a poem, nor the least part of a poem, but has reference to the soul, because, having looked at the objects of the universe, I find there is no one, nor any particle of one, but has reference to the soul." End quote. The ultimate form, therefore, of Whitman's poems is the form of himself, of the soul as individualized and uttered in him, as looking at the ocean, boundless and reaching far beyond our ken, we yet recognize in each wave the form of the sea which gives it birth. So, in reading Leaves of Grass, we recognize in each poem or poemette the form and unifying law of the author. Indeed, there is a singular resemblance in the great measured yet irregular roll of Whitman's lines to the onset of waves along a shore, now creeping white and low in long successive array, now madly surging and towering in spray, now lipping sunlight and blue upon the land. Every mood at one time or another is there and to be recognized, yet underneath and greater than all, and illustrated by them all, the law and life of the ocean itself. While all Whitman's poems are thus parts of a whole, and must gain their deepest meanings and interpretations through a study of the whole, there are some which are almost unintelligible, except in this relation, mere ejaculations, single sentences, or not even so much as single sentences. See Cosmos, Leaves of Grass, page 303, also pages 217-218. Of these, Burroughs' remarks about their non-completion, except in relation to the poet's personality, are true in the most literal way. 
of others there is a decided sense of artistic completion in themselves though still subsidiary to the total work and it is interesting with regard to this subject of form to see how whitman gains in these latter cases his artistic unity one of the most frequent and characteristic devices of his writing is the use of a very long sentence by the phrasing of his lines the construction of a very lengthy sentence can be kept clear and effective while the meaning and burden of it can be piled up and elaborated till at last the total can be discharged upon the reader with overwhelming effect many of his poems for example when i heard the learned astronomer page two fourteen or i sit and look out page two fifteen or those two from children of adam ages and ages returning and we too how long we were fooled pages ninety two and ninety three are constructed on this plan they are just one single sentence and convey one unitary effect others though consisting of more than one sentence are still the same in principle often by repeating the form of the sentence i see i see i hear i hear he gains a like result what a wonderful poem is that salut au monde in which these sights and sounds of the whole world these lists and processions of earth-dwellers these appeals to you 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 whoever you are pile up in strange surging and swelling reiteration till at last they break out and break down in the final four lines Quote, toward you all in america's name i raise high the perpendicular hand i make the signal to remain after me in sight forever for all the haunts and homes of men here in the picture of the immense earth and the poet's relation to it is the central motive in another the open road is the figure which holds all together in another the brooklyn ferry in another the broad axe and in all as i have said before a deep pulsating music easy to catch though difficult to define often the music is that of recitative sonorous bold free not returning into itself like a melody but moving forward with suggestions of things to follow this is perhaps the most general and characteristic of whitman's musical effects see for instance that strange poem quote, as Adam, early in the morning, walking forth from the bower, refreshed with sleep, behold me, where I pass, hear my voice, approach, touch me, touch the palm of your hand to my body as I pass, be not afraid of my body. How finely that might be set to music, solemn, mystic, appealing, oracular. Or read Old Ireland, page 284 in the same connection and countless other poems or portions of poems in the ox tamer page 307 there is much the same recitative effect with more metrical return and melody more rhythmical and melodic still is that beautiful vigil strange on page 238 or the sight in camp 240 and more so still perhaps the well-known come up from the fields father page 236 in many of these we notice distinct refrains and recurrences not only of lines but of metres often a return at the end to the refrain of the beginning as in the ox tamer or the march in the ranks hard pressed or the bivouac's fitful flame 
often a recurrence throughout of a certain type of line, as of anapests, six foot, in Come Up From the Fields. Quote, but now from the fields come, father, come at the daughter's call, and come to the entry, mother, to the front door, come right away. End quote. Or some other sort of refrain, as in Beat, Beat, Drums, page 222, or in Gods, page 213. Quote, Lover divine and perfect comrade, waiting content, invisible yet, but certain. Be thou my God. End quote. Finally, we have a few in distinct stanzas and set meter, or nearly so, like O Captain, page 262, or Pioneers, page 183, or The Dirge for Two Veterans, page 246. But on the whole, these are not the most characteristic or satisfactory of his pieces. For short poems held together by a distinct mood and music of their own, even if the latter be hard to define, Turn to, to him that was crucified, already quoted, or to a common prostitute, or to those wonderful lyric ejaculations, Tears, page 204, or Darest Thou Now, O Soul, page 338, or The Last Invocation, page 346, with their solemn organ tones. In two of his long poems, namely Out of the Cradle, page 196, and When Lilacs Last in the Dooryard Bloomed, Whitman has, by a combination of some of the devices above mentioned, produced an artistic effect and unity which is very remarkable, and which has made these poems general favorites. The unitary scene and landscape in both cases, the recurrence of certain emblems, lilac and star, and grey-brown bird or sagging moon and sea, the rhythmic songs introduced of love and death and the sobbing melody of the surge throughout the first-mentioned poem, and the repeated music of the Lincoln hymn. Quote, oh, how shall I warble myself for the dead one there I loved? And how shall I deck my song for the large, sweet soul that has gone? And what shall my perfume be for the grave of him I love? Lilac and star and bird twined with the chant of my soul. End quote. All these things give to these two great poems an artistic unity and distinction which single them somewhat out from the rest, and grant them, unlike some others of Whitman's, to stand alone, as it were, and on their own merits. Nevertheless, it must be said, and somewhat in defense of John Burroughs' position, that these two poems, beautiful as they are, are not so characteristic, so deeply fascinating and impressive, so central in the whole scheme and cosmos of Leaves of Grass, as those other great poems which, though not so obviously metrical or artistically balanced and complete, are governed more directly by the presence and direct utterance of the personality behind them. I mean, of course, first and foremost, the Song of Myself, and afterwards the two series, Children of Adam and Calamus, and such poems as By Blue Ontario's Shore, The Answerer, page 134, The Sleepers, page 325, to Think of Time, page 333, Sunset, page 374, Vocalism, page 297, So Long, page 380, and many others. There is, in these poems, an extraordinary oracular prophetic utterance which lifts them right through the sphere of art, and out of it, into something above. Quote, no one will get at my verses, he says, who insists upon viewing them as a literary performance or attempt at such performance, or as aiming mainly towards art or aestheticism, 
End quote. Footnote. See A Backward Glance or Travelled Roads. The Prose Appendix to Leaves of Grass. Small, Maynard & Company, Boston, 1897. End of footnote. It is in this quality in Whitman's work, transcending art, yet indeed only possible through the patient study, through the perfection and final surrender of art, that the secret of his power lies. In his poems of this order, a technical unity is not demanded, though it may be found in some of them, because they speak in the name of that self, which is and remains the unity of all things, the wind which bloweth where it listeth over the world. They have no need to seek for unity and beauty, because in uttering the self these things are already given and found. Here is a great mystery, difficult to express. No wonder that in that truly oracular poem, Vocalism, page 297, Whitman announces so great, so almost terrifying and impossible, an apprenticeship before, quote, the divine power to speak words, end quote can come and be loosened in man or woman, nothing less than the circling of all experience and the final surrender. Quote, For only at last, after many years, after chastity, friendship, procreation, prudence, and nakedness, after treading ground and breasting river and lake, after a loosened throat, after absorbing eras, temperaments, races, after knowledge, freedom, crimes, after complete faith, after clarifyings, elevations, and removing obstructions, after these and more, it is just possible there comes to a man, a woman, the divine power to speak words. Surely whoever speaks to me in the right voice, him or her I shall follow, as the water follows the moon, silently, with fluid steps anywhere around the globe. End quote. It is here no case of neglecting art, but technical art and all its devices are only a very, very small part of the apprenticeship. Before the deep music and beauty of these greatest poems we can only stand silent, absorbing indeed, but in no mood to analyze. Something greater than mortal speaks to us in them, some voice blended of ages and ages and vistas of human experience something more even than human, for nature, the prairies and the lakes, the ocean and the forest, by some hidden magic, become vocal in them. Quote, I hear you whispering there, O stars of heaven, O suns, O grass of graves, O perpetual transfers and promotions. If you do not say anything, how can I say anything? End quote. Quote, the woodman that takes his axe and jug with him shall take me with him all day. The farm boy ploughing in the field feels good at the sound of my voice. In vessels that sail, my words sail. I go with fishermen and seamen and love them. The soldier camped or upon the march is mine. On the night ere the pending battle many seek me, and I do not fail them. In that solemn night it may be their last. Those that know me, seek me. End quote. Whitman, by his vast command of and sympathy with the things of the actual world, by his strange interpenetration and identity with the elemental whole, has in these great poems revealed a presence which, as long as the waters glisten and the leaves rustle, 
can never pass or cease to speak to us and as in ancient days from some cavern on a mountainside a voice in divine frenzy issuing was taken to be that of the earth god before whose eyes past and future are one so from these writings the music arising seems to be the inspiration and part utterance even of ageless nature herself for the rest there are of course deficiencies and weaknesses as hinted earlier in this book the voluminous power which marshals and holds in leash whole battalions of phrases to hurl them finally on the reader with irresistible effect sometimes fails and then we get a lumbering disjointed efforted movement which is the reverse of admirable whitman's later poems though interesting in many ways do often show this deficiency of inspiration and some consequent lapse into mannerisms and his prose perhaps shows the same more frequently to the reader coming to these works for the first time the disregard of conventions in every direction is so great that it sometimes attracts all his attention rendering him insensible to the interior message and annoying him with a suspicion of mere affectation Quote, if he only were not obscene says such a reader or slangy or prosaic or contradictory if he only would not put in lists of trades or of seaport towns or lines that ramble at large across all the proprieties of metre and grammar we could endure him but thus and thus he is intolerable it is only after some familiarity and a gradual change of the point of view and perspective that the reader begins to see that much which he thought affected is perfectly natural and in place Quote, to speak with the perfect rectitude and insouciance of the movements of animals and the unimpeachableness of the sentiment of trees in the woods and grass by the roadside end quote, is whitman's own standard and the more one reads the more i think one is compelled to acknowledge his near approach to it that he uses the parlance of common folk instead of the set phrases of the learned is not an affectation but simply what dante and chaucer and pushkin and many another pioneer of a national literature has done that he speaks freely of physiological things is not obscenity but a deliverance from it that his handling of facts appears prosaic or unemotional may easily arise from the reader's own want of association with the facts that are handled in all these cases of a new or unfamiliar style as in painting or music the interpretations do not yield themselves till the new point of view has been seized Whitman has often been accused of want of humor, and it is notorious that nothing is more elusive and variable as between people and people, English, Scotch, French, German, American, than just this sense of humor. But no one who knows Leaves of Grass well can fail to detect the fund of quiet humor constantly flowing there beneath the surface. It has been said no one with any sense of the comic could have written the lines, quote, now i absorb immortality and peace i admire death and test propositions but does it follow that because a minor poet might fear to use such an expression lest it should excite a smile whitman would also have been afraid and have refused it even though the expression exactly conveyed his meaning and again a phrase like test propositions may well appear comic at oxford or cambridge and yet perfectly serene and sensible on an american prairie these things are a little difficult to locate all the same it must be said that the poet does in this way and at times 
put a considerable strain upon his admirers, as when he writes, quote, O setting sun, though the time has come, I still warble under you, if none else does, unmitigated adoration, end quote. Or again, quote, I will report all heroism from an American point of view, end quote. And there are affectations, or rather, I think I should say, cases in which he has of set purpose adopted forms and attitudes not perfectly natural and spontaneous. For the most part, his work is marvelously spontaneous, and in its prophetic way, deriving at once from instinctive and subconscious regions. But there is no doubt he says so himself, that in parts he set himself very deliberately to do certain things. And it is in these parts that I think he's least successful. Thus he set himself to vaunt and magnify these states, in season and out of season, a good purpose in moderation, but rather overdone, to ignore all stock poetic and classic forms and allusions whatever a practice which cripples him at times even to the extent of proscribing may and june in favour of fifth month and sixth month and to coin and introduce if possible various hybrid and denationalized words like camarado santa spirita i expose and so forth a matter in which he has often been anything but successful these set efforts, which also appear sometimes in the construction of his poems, detract at such times from the winging, singing quality of his work, and give a sense as of chains dragged along the ground. Of these weaknesses and deficiencies, however, I must say that in the long run they do not seem to me to bulk very largely. Though they may do so at first, and may seem serious, yet it is surprising how, with continued reading, they wane, and lose their importance in the general splendor, and adequacy of expression. And personally, with regard to the many quaint and outlandish things in Whitman, though they may cause a ripple in the mind, I find that they do not, for me, spoil the general effect any more than for one sailing into New York harbour the splendid vista of shipping and shores is spoiled by the sight of a bottle or other such object borne on the blue and sunlit tide. And when, on the other hand, one regards the extraordinary and admitted felicity and perfection of a vast number of his phrases, the absoluteness of the rendering and expression of some of the most difficult and subtle things, one sees that these quaintnesses, whatever may be their cause, certainly do not arise from lack of literary ability. The man who could write, quote, the large unconscious scenery of my land with its lakes and forests, or the gentle soft-born measureless light, or dark mother always gliding near with soft feet, or the yellow gold of the gorgeous indolent sinking sun, burning, expanding the air, and quotes, was without doubt a master of expression. And I may conclude this paper with the words of Addington Simmons, a study of Walt Whitman, page 150, quote, The countless clear and perfect phrases he invented to match most delicate and evanescent moods of sensibility, to picture exquisite and broad effects of natural beauty, to call up poignant or elusive feelings, attest to his artistic faculty of using language as a vehicle for thought. They are hung, like golden medals of consummate workmanship and incised form, in rich clusters over every poem he produced. And what he aimed at, above all, these phrases are redolent of the very spirit of the emotions they suggest, communicate the breadth, 
and largeness of the natural things they indicate embody the essence of realities in living words which palpitate and burn forever. End, quote. End of section six, read by Sandra, near Montreal, September 2021.